If you'd like to grab one of those, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. I've titled today's message, Asleep in the Garden. As we continue this, ba the background theme of chapter 14 is the betrayal of Christ. But today, it's, we're, lo we're looking at how the disciples fall asleep in the garden. You know, falling asleep in church, I think all of us have done that at one point or another, especially the way I preach. Uh, that was a joke. You could have laughed. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I, I preach now, I preach much longer than I used to. When I first was, when I was in Bible college, uh, much the same way I, I was introduced to Faith Assembly, I would fill pulpits for churches that didn't have pastors or their pastor was on vacation. And, and I wanted to be the best preacher I could possibly be. And really the only way you can get any better is if you do it. And so I went to Dave Bennett, who was also the one who connected me here to faith. And I said, if there's churches that need someone to preach, I'm willing. I'll throw together a sermon. I'll, I'll come and I'll preach and I'll be, I'm excited to do that. And so he had this long list of churches in the area around Ellendale. Even, I think I went even as far as uh, near Bismarck to, to preach at one point. All these churches, uh, sooner or later, he said they began to request me. And I couldn't figure out why until I went to this one church and they said, well, you know, it's football season. And you usually preach around 15, 20 minutes. So we're out in time to hear the Vikings and the Packers play. And I didn't know how to take that. So I started working to preach long. So you have that guy to thank for my 45-minute hour-long sermons some Sundays. But one of those Sundays, I was at this little church. It was the first time ever somebody fell asleep while I was preaching. This guy was very old. And I don't know exactly how old. They said he was pushing 100 he, it was one of these little, I think it was a Methodist church. It was a, a little ways west of Ellendale. And, and it was just this warm sanctuary and very comfortable pews, I guess. And, and I know sooner, I mean, my structure of my sermons hasn't changed that much. I had just read the text and this guy sawing logs like my microphone this morning. He was just snoring. He was out. And uh, I thought, wow, okay. I'm going to start to preach then. And so I did, but I would preach pretty passionately sometimes. And I said something, and I smacked the the, pulp, the lectern that morning, and he woke up and, oh, okay, okay, and then drifted right back to sleep. And, and so afterwards, I asked the, the board members who took me out for lunch, I said, was that normal for that guy? Am I really, was that a bad sermon? Like, what was that about? Because I thought I'm bringing, you know, the heat this morning, and, and he's already out with the text. And they said, don't worry about that guy. He's asleep before he comes to church. I said, well, most people are. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. He came in, and as soon as he sits in the pew, he's out. And so they said, don't take that personal. It was a great message. Okay, I appreciate that. But that always stuck with me that I'm trying to bring the word. I'm trying to teach and preach and bring something to the church. And people were just falling asleep. I thought, oh, that's... That's not good. We shouldn't have that. So today we're going to be looking at a time when the disciples fell asleep. If you will stand with me, we're going to go ahead and read beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's the word of God this morning. Will you uh, go ahead and be seated this morning? We read that text and we, we often we read that and we don't think about it. We don't, we just, oh man, those disciples, if I had the chance to sit in that garden and hear Jesus pray, I, I wouldn't have been able to fall asleep at all. I would have just sat there and just soaked up every second. And the thing is, like I've said this before, we are not the heroes of Scripture. We are the disciples. We're very much like those men in the garden that night. And we too often, and this is the one thing I hope you take away from this this morning, we too often miss the message because we are spiritually sleeping. I'll say that again. We too often miss the message because we are spiritually sleeping. What do I mean by that? Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, when Jesus tells us to stay put, it's not because He's wanting to put us on a shelf. It's not because He wants us to just sit there idly and do nothing. It's because there's something He wants to do in us and through us. But if we become stagnant, sleepy, complacent, we miss it. We miss it completely. There is a, a great purpose in the location of this text, but He just really is asking for it. One more time. There we go. You saw me shake it, right? So there's no reason. Okay. Because this is this isn't as loud as the. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Where was I? There's a lot of significance and a lot of importance as to why they are meeting where they're meeting. Where they're at. The Garden of Gethsemane. It's in this garden that the Savior begins to pray and really struggle with what's to come. He's going to wrestle with what He knows is waiting on Him over the next day. Next 24 hours. And it's here in this garden that He's going to pray one of the most powerful things we can pray. Not my will, but Your will be done. Not my will, Lord, but yours. The imagery is what one, theolo one theologian called it. This is the garden of reversal. This is the point in time where the script begins to be flipped on its head. You see, in another garden, many years before, there was a man named Adam. 
And though he didn't say it out loud by his actions, he said, my will, Lord, not yours. I don't care what your word said. I don't care what you have spoken to us. I want what I want. And here we see the exact opposite of that. How, do we, how are we to take this story? How are we to look at this and, and understand this? We look at this in, in, uh, through, through the lens of knowing what does come next. What's the application for us? As we read it, what's the lesson for us to incorporate in our lives? Well, I believe very simply put, we're to understand that just because Jesus tells you to sit, it doesn't mean you're going to stray. Just because Jesus tells you to stay put, it doesn't mean He's telling you that you have to stop. We're to stay in submission to Him, lest we become satisfied in our sleep and find ourselves spiritually staggering. That's what, that's what plays out through this narrative. An easier and shorter way to say it, I'll say again, we miss the message when we become spiritually asleep. The first thing we have to see is that sitting isn't necessarily straying. Sometimes we, we hear that phrase, that, that verse from Psalms, be still and know that I am the Lord. You know that? We've all heard that, right? That be still does not mean that you are being idle. It means you are resting and you are releasing the whole situation to God. You are giving up and letting Him. You are literally in that moment praying, not my will. I'm not going to contend with the Father's will. I'm going to submit to the Father's will. We read in verse 32, it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I pray. The emphasis is sit. Sit here. And we finally make it to this garden. We've, we're, we're at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see this whole thing play out. And we have to understand, like I said, the location is important. Gethsemane. When we know in the background that, that Judas has left, he's gone to betray, Peter's going to deny soon. But now let's look at the, let's look at the area they're at right now. Gethsemane means oil press. It's literally what it means. How many of you have ever wanted to buy a plot of land and just call it diesel engine? <laughs> but that's what the guy who owns this property did, right? Oil press. I want to I build a park one day and just call it WD-40 land. And all the slides are super slick, so the kids just go zooming, right? No. He calls it oil press. The reason is because he was likely a very wealthy landowner and he was someone who took the olives that were growing in this area and he was using them to make olive oil and sell them. He had walled off this section of the garden, by the way. This was private property in the days of Jesus. Gethsemane was, was this beautiful little place that that Jesus had this, he had to have had a relationship or a friendship at least with the owner of the property because Jesus would often come here, is what John tells us. Jesus often met there with his disciples, John 18, 2. Luke tells us that going to the Garden of Gethsemane was Jesus' custom. So if you're following along, kids, in the kids' notes this morning, it was Luke who told us that it was his custom to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
I said last week, this is probably the exact same place where in chapter 13 he gave the Olivet Discourse. This was, uh, this was Jesus' little Jerusalem getaway. It's where he would go, not necessarily to hide, but get away from the crowds, get away from the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who would just constantly bug him. He could go. It was walled off. It was, if they weren't welcome, they couldn't get in. And that kind of gives us some insight into how sneaky Judas must have been to slip in that night, to use his status as a disciple to bring in this whole group of people with swords, clubs, the chief, from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. He gets in because it's dark. He's got a crowd with him. And notice what Jesus tells the disciples. He says, sit here. Now we're reading this. We're not watching a video. So we don't know exactly where Jesus is pointing for these eight men to sit. But it's very likely he's telling them that there is one more lesson to be had. You sit here and be on guard. Sit here and watch. Now Jesus clearly at this point, he's going to be under duress. But what he, the lesson for these eight men is, he says, sit here. What do you say? Sit here while I pray. So the lesson is that prayer is not our last line of defense. It's the first thing we do. When, I, when he's on the run or at least hiding out or, or under a lot of stress, Jesus goes and prays. And these men were to see that. Now Jesus often prayed when things were fine. Jesus prayed when miracles had happened, when he'd had victories in his debates with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so on. When he'd performed awesome miracles, he would still slip away for prayer. In fact, after feeding the 5,000, that's the first thing Jesus does. He goes away alone to pray, not because it was something horrible, but he still wants to stay in communion, stay in a good relationship with the Father. And just a few verses up your Bible's page, Jesus says he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be struck down. The disciples are going to abandon him. And in times of distress, Jesus says, pray. He says, watch me. That's what I do. I pray. When things are hard, pray. We're to pray when things are good. But we're also to pray when things are not so good. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. Pray. Now we may look at these eight men and we say, well, they're just going to sit. So what good are they? They're just, they're just going to sit and stay put. What's, what's the point? Well, if, if Jesus just wanted them to stay put, if Jesus just expected them to sit, they may as well have stayed in the upper room, right? There was no point in them, come, them coming along. What do they have to offer this story? Well, they're lookouts. They're guarding the gateway into that walled garden. And again, like I said, that's how Judas slips in. Hey guys, I'm one of you. I, I brought some people to talk to Jesus. And that's how he gets in. And they're waiting. They are going to be obedient. These eight men, by the way, are not the ones Jesus scolds. It's the three that were closest to him that he gets upset with for sleeping. In the same way, we have to be obedient. When God has us in a time of sitting, in a time of staying, in a time of waiting, it's not to do nothing, but to be faithful and to be the watchman that He set up to be. He set us up to be. Verses 33 and 34 read, He took with Him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. 
course, Peter, James, and John, these guys, they're, they're the ones that are always closest to Jesus. They're the ones who are present on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus back in chapter 9. When these three men are present, when Jesus separates these three from the rest of the group, it's because he has something he specifically wants to reveal to them, something they are supposed to see that will later be revealed to the rest of the disciples. He has something very important that they need to know, they need to witness, that's not for everybody else at this time. Now Mark doesn't tell us exactly what that is. It's very likely, very possible that Luke records it. Luke says, There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And we're not told that in Mark. Luke's the only one who records that. But Mark goes to great lengths to stress the, the stress, the duress of Jesus in this time. But in spite of it all, he emphasizes Jesus' praise. No matter how bad he feels, no matter how worried or, or fearful he might appear to the disciples, the point is he prays. He says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed. In the Greek, that means to be both amazed and alarmed. He says, Mark tells us he's troubled. The Greek word is adimonoin, monane, sorry, adimonane. Wow, Greek is hard. He tells us he's suffering from terrified amazement. He realizes the time is now, and he knows what's coming. And it's powerful. And it's scary. Church, in this moment, Jesus, our Savior, is in the grip of terror. He said to them, my soul. That's His very being. It's deeper than His heart. It's deeper than just His mind. This is the very core of who Jesus, as a man, as He is. This is the very core of it. He said, my soul is very sorrowful. Sorrowful is the Greek word paralipos. And it means that He is crushed. He is surrounded by sadness. Even to the point of death. I want to be very clear, this is not from fear of men. This is not from fear of the crowd that's going to shout crucify. This isn't from fear of the cross and what is going to happen to him physically there. He's not afraid of the crown of thorns. He's not afraid of the nails. He's not afraid of the whippings. All of that. He knows what looms on the cross is God's wrath towards sin. It's an outlook the humanity of Jesus is wrestling with and suffering with and struggling with. And the disciples have to see this. They must understand this if they're to understand the dual nature of Jesus Christ. That while He is God, He is also man. And the man is struggling. The man is hurting. They knew the seriousness of the situation. Isaiah had painted a picture of this for them hundreds of years earlier when he said Jesus would be a man of sorrows. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In knowing this, in seeing the gravity of the situation, the three three disciples with Jesus, they are going to fail in the garden. 
because they're going to give in to their physical bodies, their exhaustion, their tiredness. Jesus tells both the eight and the three to stay put. He tells the eight, sit here. He tells the eight, I'm sorry, he tells the three, remain here and watch. He's telling them, literally, he's saying, stay put and be awake. Stay put and watch. This is actually a callback to chapter 13, verses 34 and 37. I won't read all of it this morning. When Jesus tells them to be alert, his wording is very similar to that here. He means for them to be ready because something inevitable is coming. Now notice the contrast with the eight and the three, the three that were given. The eight are busy while they wait. They are watching. They may take turns. They may have some of them sleep and do shifts. We're not told. We don't know. But the eight, have they're not going to be disciplined. They're not going to be scolded for how they do it. They are not going to become stagnant. The three are. They fall asleep. Church, we do this as well. In our own lives, in, in, the, in the church, when Jesus forces us into a time of sitting, if we feel He's forced us to stay confined to the proverbial bench, we roll our eyes, we feel powerless, we feel useless. There's nothing we can do but just sit here, I guess, and catch a few hours of sleep. No. Sitting does not necessarily mean straying. It does not mean taking time to appease yourself or being entertained. It's a time to be busy while we wait. To be on guard. To be watchful. To be looking to see what lesson He's trying to teach us. We miss this message because we become spiritually asleep. To avoid this, Christ models very well how to... Basically, He gives us the cure. He gives us the, re the remedy, the way to avoid it, because He Himself is staying in submission. And that's how we are to be, to stay in submission. We read verse 35. Going a little further, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. Going a little further. You probably already know this, but Jesus always goes a little further than we do, doesn't He? We think we've suffered. We think we've been hurt. We think we've been wounded or wronged. It's nothing compared to what Jesus has experienced because not only has He experienced it Himself, He has to watch His beloved go through that same thing. It's like watching your child suffer. He feels that just as much, if not more so. In this case, Jesus goes a little further. It just means He's, he's not out of eyesight. He's not out of earshot. The disciples are able to watch Him. They're able to listen to what He's praying. They're able to see Him even though it's dark. But don't miss this, please. Catch what Mark writes next. He fell on the ground. This is an English oversimplification. This is the translator taking an easy way out. And most English translations do. Because the Greek grammar here, the Greek tense, we would read it, we would say, oh, well, that's a submissive posture when praying. Of course Jesus is going to lay down on the ground. Oh, Jesus would fall. He's, he's, just, he's just falling to, to pray. No. The tense is He keeps falling to the ground. This isn't saying Jesus is tripping over sticks or, or willfully kneeling down or just bending over to pray. He's not staggering as though he's drunk. He is collapsing. He is hitting the earth hard because he's violently falling as the weight of anguish is crushing him. 
Jesus struggled to stay on his feet. That's how great his grief was in this moment. And what's he do? He begins to pray. Unlike Adam in his garden, when he's faced with temptation, Jesus cries out to the Father. Jesus begins to cry out to the only one who can do anything about this. That if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. This hour is the the set time of events that are coming. The betrayal, the beatings, the crucifixion. And it's the weight that he will bear on the cross that is the sticking point. That he's going to bear God's wrath on the cross. He's collapsing knowing that the crushing weight of my sin and your sin will soon be pressed down upon him. And that is nothing compared to the cat of nine tails raking across his back. That's what makes him fall to the ground. It's not the crown of thorns on his head or the nails piercing his hands. It's the reason they do. It's what Isaiah says, he's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, was, that has brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Though it is a terrible thought, the physical will endure very much, but the weight of the spiritual will be what impales Jesus upon the cross. That's what hurts the Savior the most. That's what brings him the most pain, the most suffering more than the human mind can fathom and we go to verse 36 and he said abba father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what i will but what you will church i have to stop for just a second this idea of praying daddy god abba meaning daddy is disrespectful to the lord And if I can be honest with you, I find it blasphemous. It's no different than saying Jesus is my homeboy or the Holy Spirit's like the blue genie from Aladdin. That is not what is taking place in this moment. People so flippantly will pray, Oh, Daddy God, He is not your Daddy. That is not the way we are to refer to Him. Jesus told us when we pray, we are to say, Our Father. It is so sad the lack of respect and the lack of worship and the lack of holiness we give to the holiest being in the universe when we come together to pray. He is not daddy. He is holy, holy, holy. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the alpha and the omega. And you're not going to sit on his lap like a toddler. Please stop mistaking childlike faith with spiritual immaturity because that's what it is. If you're doing this for your own sake, I would tell you, please knock it off. This actually comes from a linguist named James Barr. He got it wrong back in like the 1970s, and people have repeated the lie. Abba does not mean daddy. It actually means something far greater, something far more intimate. It's not gibberish used by a child for their father. It's an endearing term for a mature man and a mature woman to use to refer, refer to their benevolent father. If Jesus meant daddy, he would have used the word papas, which is where we get the word papa. That's, the, that's daddy God talk. We never see Jesus use this. 
If Jesus intended that, he would have told us to. He doesn't. He says, Abba, which means my dearest, my closest father. That's the relationship we're to have. It's intimate. It's affectionate. It's not flippant and disrespectful. Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Dearest Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus knew that in God's omniscience, in His power, in His vastness, that it's possible to provide an alternate plan. But because He knew God's sovereignty was even greater, that He had ordained all these things from eternity past, He will pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. He says, remove this cup from me. The cup, of course, refers to wrath. We see it throughout the Old Testament in Psalm 75.8, Jeremiah 49.12, for example. Again, for time's sake, I'm not going to read those this morning. Jesus knows that the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon Him on the cross. It's what sin deserves. It's what sin requires for one to be able to enter into the holiness, the holy presence of God. God's justice demands this cup be poured out upon an atoning sacrifice. One who is worthy. He prays, Lord, if it's possible, if there is someone else, somewhere else, some way else, somehow else. No. Not what I will, but what you will. Let that be done. This is a statement of total submission from Christ to the Father. This is total commitment to the sovereign plan of God. It's a callback to the Lord's Prayer when Jesus tells the disciples, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not bringing heaven to earth. That's saying we submit to the will of heaven. We submit to the will of God above all things. Hebrews 10, 5-10 perfectly outlines how Jesus submits to the Father's will. And again, I'm not going to go into it and read it, but the short version is Jesus says, He came to do the Father's will and through the shed blood of a new covenant which we receive on the cross, that's established and the old covenant passes away. That's because of His submission. It's through Christ's obedience to God's will that we are made right before a holy God. And the message for the disciples, the message for us, is stay in submission yourself. Seek God's will for your life, not your own will. A life lived in submission to the Father's will is not a life wasted. To pray, His will be done. But in the moment, the disciples will miss it. The three will miss it because they've become satisfied and sleep. Verse 37 And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Notice the hypocrisy of the disciples in this moment. You know, it wasn't that long ago, they were in the midst of a storm, and Jesus was asleep. Jesus was tired. And they came to him and they said, Lord, don't you care? They said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? You don't care that we're going to die? Now Jesus is facing death. And what do they do? They're out like a light. They're just asleep. Dead to the world. Did you catch how Jesus addresses Peter? How he singles him out? Simon? He calls him Simon because 
the fisherman is not living up to the name Jesus has given him. He's, he's not living up to Petros, rock. Simon, are you asleep? Well, he singles him out because on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember last week's message, on the way there, Peter says, Nope, Jesus, if everybody else denies you, I'm going to go and I'm going to die with you because I'm the most faithful disciple you've got. Simon, you couldn't even stay awake for an hour. That's the message there. Could you not watch? It's the same word Jesus used back in verse 34. He'll use it again in verse 38. The word is uh, Grigorsii, uh, sorry, Grigoriusi, and it means to stay awake, to be watchful. It's the same word he used back in chapter 13. Stay awake. Be watching. The inevitable is coming. He says, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Matthew says, watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. It's the same word. Watch, stay awake. They're synonymous here. The message is that something is heading this way. Be on the lookout. But they won't. They're going to be asleep. Years ago, I had this boss when I worked at Verizon. I had this boss. Her name was Christy Brown. She was fun. Um, <laughs> she loved motivational speech speakers. And she'd always try to hype us up in the morning. You ever have a boss like that? They are the worst. I like Christy, but man, not at 8 a.m., Am I feeling this? You know, I was watching this TED Talk yesterday. This is how she'd say. And they said this, and you guys, oh, doesn't that just get you excited to sell cell phones? No. I want coffee. And my bed. And anything but this. She had this one guy, though. She had us listen to this whole thing. And I'll never forget it. Because this is probably played for my benefit. He says, some of you young men don't want success because you want sleep. You want sleep more than you want to be successful. And I'm not going to lie. That morning, he's right. That's exactly how I felt. And it was true of the three disciples in this moment. They were tired. They wanted sleep more than they wanted to listen to Jesus pray. You understand, they have become complacent. They've gotten used to it. They've heard Jesus pray so much. Ah, I've heard him pray before. It's okay. You know, that's, that's kind of the attitude they're displaying. That they want rest more than they want to be on the lookout. They did not know what that night held for them. They'd come to the point of complacency that they weren't paying attention until it was too late. And so he tells them in verse 38, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's that word again, watch. Watch. But it calls us back to the, to the Lord's prayer that he taught the disciples. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The message Jesus is sending them is actually a very simple message. He's saying, be on guard and be in prayer. Church, if we fail in that place, we fail everywhere else. You want to know why false teachers creep into the church? Because we've been asleep at the wheel. The watchmen haven't been asleep. They haven't been awake on the wall. We have, we've forgotten to fall in love with what the author was telling us. We haven't been in prayer. We haven't been waiting and watching. 
So many churches will close their doors, and, and what's the first thing? Tom Rainer is a great, he's a, he's a guy, he's a church consultant, and they ask him, you know, what's the, one cons- what's the one consistent thing from all the churches that close their doors? He says they stop praying together. They stop praying, and they stop being watchful. That's a great, that's a great recipe to ruin a church. Get complacent. Stop praying. You wonder why they fled that night? You wonder why Peter feels so ashamed when he hears the rooster crow? It is his own self-confidence that lulls him to sleep that night. Nothing could happen. Jesus is fine. The other eight guys are watching the entryway. What do we have to worry about? Next words out of Jesus' mouth have been debated for almost 2,000 years. Who is he talking to when he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? Is he talking to the disciples, or is he talking about himself? And your pastor, in his ultimate wisdom, would say, yes. He's talking about both of them. He's acknowledging that his divine spirit is willing to go the distance, but his body of flesh is apprehensive. The disciples would love to be the men they saw themselves to be. They would love to be and live up to the, the, what they decreed on the way to the garden that they would, no matter what, they would not fall away. That's their spirit. They want to be the faithful followers of Jesus. But in the moment of heat, in the moment of pressure, they'll give into their flesh and they'll run. Church, this is the struggle of every believer at some point. We're not always able to practice the righteousness we wish we could display. Paul writes about it. He says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It's the same struggle. But you, remember, you have to remember, Peter said he's above it. Peter said he's beyond this. He insisted that if everyone else fall away, he alone would remain faithful. And Jesus says, Peter, you can't even stay faithful for an hour. You can't even stay awake for an hour. And again, he went away and he prayed saying the same words. This is the second time Jesus walks away and he's asking God, make another way. In this, this is the opportunity. We see his humanity. It's not a sin to admit that we're weak. It's not a sin to admit that, God, maybe, maybe your plan could use some changing, please. But we have to remember, ultimately, it's not about what we want. It's his will. It's his plan. It becomes so easy to yield to our sins when we're tired, when we're weary, when we've been going nonstop. That's why Jesus said much earlier in this book, he said, the book of Mark, he said the Sabbath was made for man. There is a time for rest. It's not a sin to sleep. Jesus took naps. Kind of touched on that already. But to be spiritually sleepy, to become dormant, that's the struggle. We will struggle with sin when we're mentally, physically, spiritually exhausted. That's why Jesus stresses over and over to be alert, to be on the watch. But when we love the rest, when we love the sleep, when we love comfort too much, something has to change. And some of you don't know this, but the air conditioner's been out at the parsonage for a few days. My faith has been tested. 
I really did not know. I mean, I joked about it last week. I said, man, I'd have a hard time without air conditioning. I've had a hard time. But you know what? Still praying. Still trying to be faithful. Still saying, Lord, not your will, not mine. Your will, not my will, but yours. Wow, I about, about messed that up. Not my will, but yours. There's, there's a time where a Christian will be tested and pushed to their breaking point. And that's when we find out who we are in Christ. Amen? Jennifer and I know a pastor, a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine. Last week was our anniversary, and we were going to Fargo, and we were talking, and, and I said, you know, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely worried about this guy. I'm really concerned. I've had to distance myself from him because he's so negative all the time. Just, just so defeated, and I just, I can't, he, he has almost an unstable personality at times, and, and he doesn't appear to be getting better, and I'm praying for him, but Jennifer made the comment. She said, you know, it was COVID. Broke him. That was a scene where all of a sudden it got real for a lot of us, didn't it? We were seeing around the world freedoms being infringed upon and things like that. And all of a sudden, Christianity is not so comfortable. They're telling us we can't meet together. And, and even our own leadership in our state said, hey, you got to shut it down for a while. And to my regret, we did. We'll never do that again. But the fact is, we did. And my wife made a good point. She said, he realized for the first time I might actually have to suffer for Christ. My job being a pastor is not just preaching the sermon and planning a potluck. I might have to lead people through a very horrible time on this planet. And it was hard. And it's broken him. And she's not just right about my friend. We know Christians. Many of us know people who had what we believe to be strong faith at one point. And through that time, fell away. Church, Jesus is not just a psychological escape from the world. In fact, if you're treating him like that, you're, it's wrong. Yes, he's our refuge. Yes, he is our hiding place. Yes, he is our fortress. But do you understand, those are three places that you make war from. You don't just hide and, and go away in. He calls us to be awake and to be alert and in submission to the will of the Father. And then... Then he can be our fortress because he keeps us safe as we continue the fight. He protects us as we, as we continue to carry out his will. When we're only satisfied in Jesus, when he gives us rest, we'll never be satisfied doing anything else that reciprocates his love. We miss the message because we become spiritually asleep. And when we're asleep, the enemy comes and we'll find ourselves spiritually staggered. Verse 40 reads, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer them. It's the second time he comes, he finds them sleeping. And note how Mark describes them. He says, their eyes were heavy, they did not know what to answer, them, uh, answer him. You know, if we just take a second here, let's show them a little bit of grace. Let's take a step back, okay? Let's, this is how, if, if I'm Jesus, thankfully I'm not, but if I'm Jesus, I'm you know what, guys? You've had a long day. Really. John, Peter, you guys were up so early. You went and cooked dinner for us. You got that sacrificial lamb. You made the upper room good for us. 
You deserve a break. James, I've had you all over the place. You know, I, you are running errands. You went and you might have been one of the guys to, to help me organize this other thing today. And I, I guess you deserve a break. That's not what Jesus does. Forget the fact they've just had a big meal. Forget the fact they just walked a 30-mile hike down a valley and up a mountain. Jesus wakes them up. They have no excuse. They didn't know what to answer him. It's just like on the Mount of Olives all over again. Or sorry, Mount of Transfiguration all over again. Words just fail them. And this time, Peter has enough sense to keep his mouth shut. They failed him. Jesus expected them to stay awake. They should have been able to stay awake. This day, of all days, this would have been a walk in the park in ministry for them. They weren't facing attack that day. Not yet. Unlike the Mount of Transfiguration, like I said, Peter stays quiet. Verse 40. Again, he came and found them asleep. Nope, I already read verse 40, didn't I? I skipped verse 39. This happens sometimes. Sorry. We'll go on to verse 41. He came in the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and talking or taking your rest? It is enough. The, tour, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is where Jesus has truly struggled, where salvation is achieved on the cross. This, it's in the garden, it's during this battle. It's in the garden where Jesus truly wrestles with temptation, where he's victorious over the enemy, where he's victorious over his own human nature. It's in Gethsemane Jesus steals himself for what's next. He would have spent about three hours in prayer, and victory came. And this last time he gets on his feet, he doesn't rise as a weeping carpenter, he rises as a conquering king, as a conquering king ready for battle. And he moves ahead. Chuck Swindoll said, It's important to remember that this is where Jesus struggled, not on the cross. The cross became the place of victory. There he dealt the ultimate death blow to death, winning the victory over sin, the grave, and the devil. His struggle took place in Gethsemane, where temptation told him to slip away into the night and disappear like a vapor. This is where evil pitched its last desperate battle to derail the redemptive plan of God. Evil lost the fight. The third time, Jesus comes to the disciples and they remain indifferent. Spiritual victory goes to those who are alert in prayer, standing on Scripture and dependent on the Father. These men were not. The self-confidence of the disciples is about to be shaken because they could not stay awake. They could not pray with Him. They grew too comfortable where they were stationed. Their self-confidence combined with spiritual unpreparedness leads to a disaster of the soul. I'll say that again. Self-confidence combined with spiritual unpreparedness leads to a disaster of the soul. We see that in Samson. We see it in David. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Of course they are. They have no motivation to make any movement. So Jesus, in a cry of desperation, in an effort to wake them up and shake them, he cries out, It's enough. The hours come, and he continues, Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. The three had no idea where this was going. The three had no idea what was going to happen this night. They, they ate by the entrance 
They're possibly, un, they're possibly equally unaware. Judas walks in with this group of people and, oh, well, Judas is here. Okay, hey, we're all, all 12 of us back together again. He's brought some friends. Jesus says, let's be going. The English way of saying this, if we were to modernize, it would be, follow my lead. Follow my lead. He's saying, we're going to meet this head on. You see, moments before in his prayer, Jesus was stressed. Jesus was worried. But through prayer, he understands it's about the Father's will. And it's here, he says, let's go. Let's, let's do this thing, right? It's time. The time for sleep has passed. And now the rubber meets the road. We're going to leave it here for this week, but do you see the problem when the weariness of the world, when our focus, when the focus of the Christian drifts from Christ, when it drifts to self, we miss what he's been trying to show us. We get comfortable in so many places. This was, this was a garden. This wasn't the Hilton. This wasn't a five-star hotel. And yet they sleep on the ground. They made time to sleep rather than be on guard. When we become stagnant, when we stop moving, when we start resting with our focus off Christ, we begin to miss the point. We miss the lesson that He has for us. And so many Christians will miss the next phase of their life where God wants to lead them, where God wants to take them because they've gotten too comfortable in their current place. I'm going to move to close in just a moment if we have the musicians come back up. But isn't it interesting that in this moment in the garden, at this point in Gethsemane, the people who were closest to Jesus, the people who should have really understood it, this is where they fail Him the most. It's Mary who anoints Him for oil. It's two secret disciples, Nicodemus and Josephus, who will bear, uh, sorry, Joseph, I don't know why I said Josephus, Joseph, who will bury Him. A bystander, Simon of Cyrene, will help Him carry the cross. A pagan centurion will acknowledge that He truly is the Son of God. Women will find His body missing at the tomb. It's only John the disciple who was willing to go and follow Him all the way to the cross. But the rest of the twelve, one of them will hang himself. One will run away crying in the night because he's denied Jesus three times. They're all going to abandon him to save their own skin as Jesus is hauled away. They will not keep watch, but they will instead go back to where they are comfortable. And the words of Jesus should challenge us today the same as they must have echoed and haunted those men for the rest of their lives. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We're going to worship this morning as we close, but if this messages you and you're saying you know what i i am complacent i am sleepy i'm tired spiritually i want to rest i want to to give up are you resting when you know god is pushing you to go to something greater are you resisting his challenge to stay awake are you spiritually stagnant then find a place to pray find time to pray we're going to worship as we close this morning if if this is for you like i said find a place find a time to pray and we'll, we'll close after we sing.